Well, we've prayed as we sang um, about God's word and our, my speaking and your hearing of that word, but let's just have a further moment of prayer together. Our loving Father, as we dig once again into your word, we pray that we might discover something more of the unsearchable riches of Christ. Amen. I wonder how far back you can go in your family tree. I was checking mine earlier, and on my mother's side, we can just about go back to 1820. It's all a little vague, and there's a question mark there about the exact date, but um, a sort of great-great-or-great-grand-grandparent goes back to 1820. And I don't know, maybe yours goes back even further than that. But it's all a bit vague prior to about 1900 in my own family's case. Um, Not many of us, I guess, can rival the claim of Canadian furniture maker Michael Ibsen, who is the nearest known relative of Richard III, who died at the Battle of Bosworth in 1483. I think there are about 18 generations between uh, King Richard and that of Michael Ibsen, who's um, a few years younger than me, so still a very young man. But did you know that each of us is a member of a still more ancient family? Every one of us. And it's of this family that Paul speaks and writes in our Bible passage this evening. Romans chapter 5, and that's page 1132 in the church Bibles, Romans chapter 5. We had verse 9 until the end uh, read to us earlier from Ruth. And... uh, In fact, he speaks not of one ancient family, but two. He divides the entire population of the world, not into Jews and Gentiles, as many of his readers might have expected, but into two other families. And at the head of each of these two families is a representative. At the head of the most ancient of these families stands as head and representative Adam. And at the head of a new family stands Christ. And each one of us and every person who has ever lived belongs to one of those families or the other. So let me speak to you out of this passage about Adam's family and Christ's family, and see how they compare and contrast. First of all, the family of Adam. Verse 12, if you will look at that with me, takes us way back, long before the time of Moses and the giving of the law, before even the time of Abraham and the founding of the Jewish nation, right back to the story of Adam and the garden and the forbidden fruit. Do you see that in verse 12? Just as, just as sin entered the world through one man, and that's Adam, 
and death through sin. Uh, So here is a man, Adam, created by God and like God and for God, but he rebels. And it's a hugely significant act of rebellion. It is not an oops moment, merely the unwise choice of an apple when he should have picked an orange. In fact, I don't think there's any mention of apples or oranges in Genesis chapter 3. It's referred to, isn't it, as the, knowledge, uh, as the tree of the knowledge of fruit and evil, which suggests to me that what Adam did in picking that fruit... Pardon? I beg your pardon. Thank you. Thank you for that. I didn't, I didn't hear myself say that. <laughs> they knew that, but they were too polite to say. But, but thank you. I didn't hear myself say that, uh, <laughs> that word come out. The, the tree, let's be quite clear about it, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Happy? We're happy now. Okay, then. It was not an apple. It was that kind of thing. So I guess what was going on when Adam picked from that tree is he was deciding to go his own path of wisdom, choose his own way rather than God's way. And so it turned out to be an act of deliberate defiance. It has something of the symbolism, I guess, of a woman taking off her wedding ring and hurling it across the room at her husband. It's an act of treason, a unilateral declaration of independence, what Dr. Don Carson calls the de-godding of God, where Adam says, no, I will go my way and not God's way. I will choose what I think is the wise path and, what not, and not what God says is the wise path. And Paul's point here is that Adam did not act merely as a private person, but as the head and representative of us all, standing, as he does, at the head of the human race. We may well feel uneasy at being lumped together in this way with Adam, whom we've never known or met, but then we live in a perversely individualistic age, don't we? But even we can have some understanding of human solidarity and corporate responsibility. We can understand that if the captain of a cricket team decides to walk off the pitch in, uh, in uh, protest against dodgy umpiring, the whole team follows. We can understand that when the chief executive fouls up the finances of the company, the whole company goes into receivership. We can understand that when the president of a country declares war, the whole nation is at war. And so it was with Adam's sin. It brought down the entire human race. He rebelled and he was expelled from God's presence and took everyone else with him. That's one act of disobedience for a man, one giant catastrophe for mankind. Notice, please, how verse 12 links sin and death. 
just as sin entered the world through one man, that's Adam, and death through sin. In this way, death came to all men because all sinned. And this recalls what God had said way back in Genesis chapter 3 to Adam. If you eat of the forbidden tree, you will surely die. And die he did. In Genesis chapter 5, we have the following sort of litany. Adam lived 930 years, and then he died. Seth lived 912 years, and then he died. Enosh lived 905 years, and then he died. Kenan lived 910 years, and then he died. And so it goes on. Lived extraordinarily long periods of time, but the outcome was the same in every case. Each one died. Now, you may doubt how far these early chapters of Genesis are intended to be understood literally. Well, in that case, does that bring Paul's argument toppling down? Does that get us off the hook if you don't take a completely literal uh, view of those early chapters of Genesis, you know, the serpent and the tree and everything? Well, no. It doesn't get us off of the hook at all. Paul's logic, I believe, still holds. Much of what we know as Christians can only be known by divine revelation, because God has told us in Scripture. But this doctrine, this biblical doctrine that we call the doctrine of original sin, can be confirmed by personal observation and experience. It is, if you like, the one patently obvious doctrine of the Christian faith. Journey to the far corners of the earth and search out the most remote tribe. Travel back in time to the most ancient civilization. Examine your own heart and you will find no exception to the rule. Whether our misdeeds are few or many, relatively trivial or deeply heinous, We find ourselves by nature to be members of that same fallen and dying race. In Adam, all are lost, shipwrecked, mortally wounded. As Paul puts it elsewhere, without hope and without God in the world. That's what we all are by nature, as members of Adam's fallen race. But, you know, that's not the only thing taught in this passage, and it's not even the main thing. There hangs in the chapel of King's College in Cambridge a celebrated painting by Rubens. It's called The Adoration of the Magi. In 1974, vandals broke in and defaced it by daubing three letters on it, each two feet high. Those letters were I-R-A. The following day, the painting, defaced as it was, was taken down, and a notice was put up in its place. The notice said simply this. 
It is believed that this painting can be restored to its original condition. John Henry Newman sings in one of his hymns, O loving wisdom of our God, when all was sin and shame, a second Adam to the fight and to the rescue came. So that brings us to Christ, who elsewhere Paul will refer to, actually not as the second Adam, but the last Adam, the final Adam. And Paul tells us in verse 14 that Adam was a pattern or type of Christ. Do you see that? Adam, who was a pattern of the one to come. That's Christ, of course. Just as Adam stands at the head of one section of humanity as their representative, so Christ stands at the head of another vast section of the human race as their representative. But Adam and Christ, as representatives of their relative, respective sections of humanity, is the only thing they have in common. That's where the similarity ends. Everything else, for Paul, is dissimilarity, contrast. Do you see in verse 15, where it says, the gift of Christ is not like the trespass of Adam. The gift is not like the trespass. You see, Adam's trespass and Christ's gift differ in nature. Adam's trespass came out of disobedience and self-assertion and led to to condemnation and to death. Christ's gift comes out of obedience and self-sacrifice and leads to acquittal and to life. But the trespass and the gift differ not only in nature, but also in scale. The gift is not only different from the trespass, it is also so much more than the trespass. Do you see in verse 15 what Paul says? The gift is not like the trespass, for if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many. How much more? Professor Tom Wright invites us to imagine a statue that's been ruined by vandals and then rebuilt, stronger and more impressive than before. The main point, he says, is that what God has done in the one man, Jesus, the Messiah, is far, far more than simply putting the human race back to what it was before the arrival of sin. The statue has been remade. It's far more splendid than before. It isn't a case of what they knocked down, God will put back up. Nor is it the case of what they did wickedly, God will do graciously. God has done far, far more. Let me put it like this, that what we gain in Christ is more numerous, more certain, and more victorious than what we lost in Adam. First of all, the sins that have been forgiven in Christ are more numerous than those that were condemned in Adam. When Adam sinned once, 
the human race fell and was condemned and subject to death. But Christ's sacrifice covers the sins of all penitent sinners. According to verse 15, condemnation and death entered the world because of the one sin of the one man. But God's gift of acquittal and life covers innumerable sins committed by untold multitudes of people. There is no end to it. There is no one to whom Jesus will say, that's one person too many. I don't have any more mercy, any more grace left. It is for all who will freely accept that free gift. Think back to God's promise to Abraham, as recorded in, back in Genesis. He would become the father of many nations. Through him, all nations of the earth would be blessed. His descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. That's Genesis 22. Or think of the description of the redeemed in the last book of the Bible. Revelation chapter 7 verse 9 depicts a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, and every one a forgiven sinner. The sins that have been forgiven in Christ are far more numerous than those that were condemned in Adam. But now secondly, Christ's hold on us is more powerful than Adam's hold on us. Don't get me wrong, Adam's grip The grip of the old nature is very, very strong. Struggle as we may. Reform ourselves as we might. We cannot wriggle free from it. But when we cast ourselves on the mercy of Christ, his promise stands. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. And Paul will go on to declare his conviction in the 8th chapter of Romans, the very last verse, that nothing, no, not even death itself, can separate us from the love of God in Christ. Christ's hold on us is more powerful than Adam's hold on us. Christ can release us from the grip of Adam and bring us into eternal life that no one else can give and no one else, no one can take away from us. And now thirdly, the reign in life that we have in Christ is more victorious than the reign of death that was ours in Adam. Verse 17, if you look at that with me, verse 17 talks about the reign of death through Adam. And we would then expect Paul to contrast this with the reign of life through Christ. But he goes further than that. What he says is is not that life will reign, but that we will reign. We who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ, he says. And again, Paul will expand on this in chapter 8 and verse 37 when he declares that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We might well ask ourselves, mightn't we, if we are living like those who are destined to reign in life. Or are we like those people that we hear of from time to time who lived and died in abject poverty and destitution, even though 
they had a fortune in the bank. More numerous, more powerful, more victorious is what we have gained in Christ compared with what we lost in Adam. Calvin says, Christ is much more powerful to save than Adam was to destroy. And Isaac Watts, in one of his hymns, sings, In him, in Christ, the tribes of Adam boast more blessings than their father lost. And all of that for the princely sum of, well, the invoice has already been stamped, paid in full, has it not? As verse 17 puts it, it's simply a gift to be received. It's a gift. Sin conquered, death defeated, a cause for thanksgiving, for the superabundance of God's grace, a reason for unity amongst God's people, since we are all accepted by God on the, on the self-same terms, and a motive for outreach and evangelism, for, because this gospel is suitable to all needs and conditions. Ah, yes, you say. But hasn't Paul forgotten something? Has it slipped his mind that I still, I'm a Christian, but I still sin daily? And one day, I must die. It's very musical. Has Paul forgotten that we still sin daily and that we are destined still to die unless his uh, return intervenes? No, Paul hasn't forgotten those two truths that as Christians we, have, we are very far short of perfection. But it's to those very questions, the problem of sin and the problem of death, to which you will turn in the next three chapters. But that's something for the Sunday evenings to come and for other preachers to cover with you. For the moment, let us pray and hold a moment of silence, and then I think Martin will continue in prayer and lead our intercessions. Our gracious Father, we feel perhaps that we stand on the edge of a vast ocean. We can't see the other side, and even the middle distance seems shrouded in mist to our poor perception. But we thank you for the truths of your word, and we pray that by your Holy Spirit we may meditate, that they might be drilled home into our hearts and minds, and that we might find ways of responding with thanksgiving, with unity, and in mission in the days and weeks ahead. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.